to Hebrews chapter 3. And we're going to read um, a big chunk because I want to go back to what we talked about last week, kind of to wrap it up, and then we will move forward to uh, today's message. We're going to focus only on Hebrews 3, 14 to chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, that's the passage we're going to be talking about today. But we're going to read uh, back a little bit from chapter 3 so we can remember what we talked about last week because this week is a build-up on last week. So Hebrews 3, verse 7. Here is what the author of Hebrews said. Therefore, mm-hmm. as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily what is, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16. For who being... Um, for who, having heard, rebuilt? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Verse 17. Now, with whom he was angry for years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they will not, would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter uh, in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have, uh, to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, uh, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it, for we uh, who, have, who have believed do enter their rest. Amen. So we have been talking about how the author of Hebrews argued through the first 10 chapters pretty much that Christ is superior to the Old Testament. We have seen in chapter 1 verse 1 to 3 that he is superior to the prophets. We have seen uh, from verse 4 in chapter 1 all the way till the end of chapter 2 that he is superior to the angels. Now starting chapter 3 we have seen that Jesus is superior to Moses. Again, if you remember, the author of Hebrews spent verse 1 to verse uh, 6 arguing how Jesus is superior to Moses. He said that even though both were faithful, Jesus is greater in as much as the builder deserved more honor and more glory than the building. And, the, and, and Moses was a servant in his house, but Jesus is the son of God in that house. And that's why Jesus is superior. After the author of Hebrews presented his theological argument that Jesus is superior to Moses, chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, now he went up to talk about the followers of Moses versus the followers of Christ. And he quoted uh, Psalm 59, verse 7 to verse 11, and that's in chapter 3, Hebrews 3, 7 to 11 as well. And then he talked about an application and an exhortation from that 
quote from Psalm 95 and apply that to this to his hearer, the readers of the book of the of Hebrews. You guys are with me. So Hebrews uh, three, starting from verse uh, seven, all the way till the end of chapter four, there is three main points. There is that quotation from Psalm fifty nine. Then there is, is the application, which is chapter 3, verse 12 to verse 15. And then there is the exhortation, also f- driven from Psalm 59. And that's from chapter 3, verse 16, all the way till end of chapter 4. You guys are following the train of thought here with the author of Hebrews, right? So last week, we talked about the quotation, and we started with the application, and we stopped at verse uh, 13. Today we're going to finish the application and we're going to start into the exhortation. And we're going to go all the way to chapter 4 verse 3. So now when it comes to still applying that the point of, ver- of, of Psalm 59. The author of Hebrews tells us here in, 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 chapter, in verse 14 of chapter 3. He says this. He says, um, let me find that verse. 15, 13. Beware. Okay. Uh, it starts actually, um, it says by this, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. That's verse 14. Now, the word that he used here, partaker, and the word steadfast that he also used is actually both uh, in Greek kind of business terms. The idea here is this. The author of Hebrews is telling us that we kind of entered into a business agreement with Christ. The foundation of that agreement is Christ's faithfulness, which he has already established in the beginning of that chapter. Even in chapter 2, he talked about Jesus being a faithful high priest. But the idea also is we also need to be faithful in following Christ. It's He's faithful. He'll do his part in that uh, agreement. But we also need to be faithful and do our part in our following Christ. And that's why he said, if we hold fast to the confidence that we started with. And remember, he's, he's applying Psalm 59 to his readers. And remember that Psalm 59, we talked about that last week, is pretty much an, an, uh, an analogy or like an, uh, an explanation of the events that took place in Numbers 14. When the children of Israel rebelled against God in Kadesh Barnea, right before they entered the promised land. You guys remember that? And they ultimately defied God and they refused to believe the promises of God and they rejected God ultimately. So the author of Hebrews here is again drawing our attention to that generation. Remember, they started good, right? They believed God when Moses delivered the message that God will deliver them. They even by faith crossed over the Red Sea, right? So they started good with confidence. Their confidence in God was good in the beginning. But they wavered throughout and they reached to the point of ultimate rejection to God. You guys are with me? That's why the author of Hebrews here is telling us this. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So he's comparing his reader to the original generation. And he said they did not hold their confidence steadfast to the end. You guys are with me? They started with good confidence in God. But they start to compromise a little bit to getting till they got to the point of ultimate rejection. So let's not be like them. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying, right? Let's hold the beginning of our confidence firm, even all the way to the end, unlike the first generation that left the land of Egypt. You guys are with me? 
So that's what the author of Hebrews is applying, how he's applying Psalm uh, 95 to the readers. And then he quotes Psalm 95 again, while it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. I don't think the author of Hebrews here is trying to introduce a new idea or new theology. He might be just quoting the psalm again to wrap up all what he has been telling us so far. That today is the time when we have to hear the voice of God. Unlike the children of Israel when they heard the promises of God yet they refused to obey it and refused to enter the land of the promise. So he's just saying wrapping up his application now from Psalm 95 and say let's act differently than the first generation that left the land of Egypt. Amen. Amen. And then he moves on from the applications of Psalm 95 to the exhortation of Psalm 95. How his readers should live their lives in the light of Psalm 59. And he divides that into two main points. Negatively, he's exhorting them by not being like the first generation. You guys are with me? And that's chapter 3, verse 16 to verse 19. He's saying, let's not be like them in, an, in, in a negative sense. And positively, he's trying to encourage his reader to enter into the rest of God that also spoken about in Psalm 95. And that's pretty much the whole chapter 4. You guys are with me? So now he's moving into the exhortation of Psalm 95. Negatively, let's not be like them. That's chapter 3, verse 16 to 19. And positively, let's strive to enter into the rest of God. And that's chapter 4, pretty much the whole chapter. So let's look a little bit into that. Verse 16 to verse 19 of chapter 3. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, it was, was it not all who came out of the land of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpse fell in the wilderness? And to whom he swore that they would not enter into his rest, but to those who did not obey. So in these two verses, the author of Hebrews has how many questions for us? How many questions? Three questions. They're all rhetorical questions. The answers are pretty obvious. He's not asking because he doesn't know the answer. They're all rhetorical questions. Are you guys with me? And the idea here is this. If you look into his questioning and the answers that he is providing for us, you're going to see that his question is pretty much driven from Psalm 95. Like resembles so much what David said in Psalm 95. The answers, on the other hand, pretty much driven from the account of Numbers chapter 14. You guys are with me? So he's mixing both Psalm 95 and Numbers 14 when he's asking these rhetorical questions. I have all the references here. You can go look into it. Uh, it's just you need to read it and study it. But the idea here, he's driving the question from Psalm 95, driving the answers from Numbers chapter 14 to tell us in a way how Numbers 14 really is the foundation of Psalm 95. And that what David was talking about in Psalm 95 is pretty much uh, his, his, his explanation of the events that took place in Numbers 14. You guys with me so far? Yeah. All right. Now, what he's saying here, his three, three uh, rhetorical questions. The first one is, for who having heard rebelled? Look at the first word he used. They rebelled, right? 
The second word, he was angry with them for 40 years. And number three, that um, to whom he swore they would not enter into his rest. The idea here, and then it says, but to those who did not obey. So we see that they rebelled, they did not obey, and they refused to believe God for 40 years. That's the, the questioning of the author of Hebrews. So the idea here again is that the people of Israel who left the land of Egypt did not just were weak in their faith in one incidence or in two incidences. This is more a pattern that for 40 years they kept on refusing to believe God. For 40 years they kept on rebelling against God. And that pattern in a way climaxed to the events of number 14 when they ultimately and utterly reject God and refuse to believe his promises to enter into the promised land. You guys are with me? Now let's look at these... um, Terminologies that the author of Hebrews used a little bit here to describe their attitude. He said that they have rebuilt, and that's the first part of verse 16. And that takes us pretty much directly to Numbers 14, when the children of Israel openly refuse to obey God. God promised them that they will enter into the land of the promise, but they openly and utterly refused to trust God, and they forgot all his faithfulness in the past, and they declared that God is not able to fulfill what he has promised them. Amen? Amen. And the emphasis here on the word all, it's all who got out of the land of Egypt who were led by Moses. Obviously, there is two people who left the land of Egypt and still made it to the promised land, right? That was Caleb and Joshua. Joshua. Right, Joshua and Caleb. These are the two spies. These are the only two people who left the land of Egypt, yet they actually made it into the promised land. So why is uh, the author of Hebrews saying the word all here? Well, the idea is clear. Even though he's using the word all, but he's focusing on those who rebelled throughout the whole time. He's focusing about those who rebelled. So even though he didn't mention Caleb and Joshua by name, it doesn't mean that he mean, that he's including them among those who rebelled and those who entered the promised land. You guys are with me? And then he said that all who have been led by Moses. He's bringing Moses up here to contrast The faithfulness of Moses, again, is the unfaithfulness of the children of Israel. You guys are with me? He has already established that Moses was faithful in all his house. He did not rebel against God. So he's contrasting here the faithfulness of Moses, who who was the leader who took them out of the land of Egypt, against the unfaithfulness of those who ultimately and utterly reject God in Kadesh Barnea before they entered the promised land. Amen? Now let's move to verse 17. And look what he's saying here. He's saying, Now with whom he was angry 40 years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses filled in the wilderness? If you guys can notice here, he changed back the original quote from Psalm 95 to the original quote in Psalm 95. If you go to Psalm 95 and uh, read verse 9 and 10 with me here. It says this. Verse uh, 8. Do not harden your heart. Verse 9. Where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation. Right? We talked about that last week. The original Septuagint and the Hebrew Bible as well doesn't say 
uh, that they tried God for 40 years and after that God was angry with them. It says that God was angry with them for 40 years because they refused to believe God. You guys are with me? We talked about that last week and we said that the author of Hebrews, it seems like he's on purpose changed the wording that the 40 years is not a time of, of wrath, it's a time of grace to show his hearer that they cannot keep on ignoring the grace of God. You guys remember that? But now in verse 17, he's going back to the original Hebrew and Greek. And he's saying that now with whom he was angry 40 years. So now the 40 years are time of wrath, not a time of grace. Have I lost you already or not yet? Not yet? So he's going back to the original Hebrew. Why is he doing that? Well, it seems like in the Old Testament, if you look back, you're going to see that the 40 years in the Old Testament sometimes are referred to as time of grace and sometimes are referred to as a time of wrath. So the idea is actually overlapping throughout the Old Testament. You're going to see that these 40 years are a time of grace in many times. Exodus 16, 35, Deuteronomy 2, 7, and Nehemiah 9, 21. In these three incidents, for example, the Old Testament speaks about these 40 years being the time of grace. Amen? But in other incidences, we see that these 40 years are time of anger, time of wrath of God against his people who kept on trying him, particularly in Numbers 14, 33 to 34, and in Numbers 32, 13. So in these two incidences, we see that these 40 years were time of wrath. You guys are with me? So in the Old Testament, sometimes they're described as time of grace, sometimes are described as time of wrath. And maybe that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's just reflecting on how the Old Testament we're seeing this time. He described it as time of grace, and he also described it as time of wrath. But the idea to his readers is simply the same. That God's grace is not an open-ended invitation. That if God would have waited 40 years, he ultimately executed his judgment. So that's a word to his reader, right? That even though God is being gracious with you, it doesn't mean that God will not judge you. And it can be also a warning to his reader that even though God executed judgment throughout 40 years, he ultimately rejected them and refused to take them back at any cost. So even though you are experiencing God's judgment incrementally now, do not harden your heart. Otherwise, you're going to end up being utterly rejected by God. Amen? Verse 18, it says this. This is how he started his third rhetorical question. He said, um, let me find that verse. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? We don't see that in a way as clear as possible in, in Psalm 95, but we see that verse referencing heavily Numbers 14, 43, where, where Moses is telling the people this, you turned away from the Lord in disobedience. So we see in Numbers 14 that Moses is telling the people, you are disobeying God, you're not obeying him. And that's probably what the author of Hebrews was referencing here. To whom God executed his judgment is on those who disobeyed him. As a matter of fact, Moses told us this in the same Numbers 14, 22, God told the people, 10 times you have been disobeying me, 10 times you have been testing me, since the time you were even in the land of Egypt, you kept on trying me, you kept on disobeying me, you kept on rejecting me. So I, again, I want to show you here that the idea is constant disobedience, 
constant rejection of God. This is not a one-time incident. This is a pattern of the children of Israel who kept on rejecting and kept on refusing the living God. And then everything climaxed in Kadesh Barnea when God ultimately rejected, rejected them and he sworn by an oath that they will never enter into his rest. You guys are with me so far? Now, let's move on to verse 19. And here is what verse 19 says. Verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of... Uh, now, this is one scary verse, you guys. We see... Let's say that verse together. We see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, the word unbelief, we don't see it in Psalm 95 at all. We see that the word, the word disobedience all the time in Psalm 95. But we don't see the word unbelief. But the author of Hebrews is introducing, not he mentioned it before, but he's using that word here primarily to reflect Numbers 14 verse 11. Again, everything is based on that incident in the book of Numbers. When he said this, how long would, you, would, uh, would they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them. That's God speaking to Moses. And he's talking about the children of Israel. And he said, how long will they not believe me? They're acting in disbelief. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us here. They did not trust God. They did not believe him. He even warned us earlier. We talked about this last week. He said, make sure that there is none among you have an evil heart in unbelief and departing from the living God. Remember that from last week? So the unbelief is a foundational theology for the, for the author of Hebrews that the people of, of Israel did not enter into the promised land because of unbelief and if they did not enter because of their unbelief you also might have the same faith and not enter into the very promise of God because of unbelief. You guys are with me? You guys are with me. This is scary time, scary scripture. Now, look what he said here. Verse 19, he said this. For we see that they did not want to enter into the promised land. Does it say that? Verse 19. So we see that they did not want to enter into the promised land. They could not. They were not able. Correct. So it's not that they did not want to. They could not enter into the promised land. The author of Hebrews again here might be taking us back to Numbers 14. After God sworn by an oath through Moses that this generation will not enter into the promised land. You guys know what they did? They said, oh no, no, we'll go in now. After God said with an oath, they're not going to get in. They decided not to believe God again. And they formed an army and they marched into the promised land. And what happened? They got defeated. Because again, they did not believe God once more. God said, I give you the land. They say, no, you can't. God said, okay, I'm not going to give you the land. They say, no, we're going to go in. It's like whatever God says, they just want to do the exact opposite of what God has told them now to do. You guys are with me? And they could not enter. Obviously, they could not enter because they got defeated in the battle. But the idea here is this, that the author of Hebrews is telling us what held them back from entering into the promised land was not just that they were physically defeated by another army, but because of their unbelief. 
they could not enter into the promised land. And what held them back is their unbelief. And in a way, in a way, the author of Hebrews now introducing a theme to us that he spoke about multiple times later on in the book of Hebrews. That those who reject Christ once and for all and apostatize and utterly reject God, it's impossible that they can ever be redeemed again. You guys are with me? He's saying that the children of Israel during that day in Kaddish Barney, they utterly rejected God and there was absolutely no way that they could ever be redeemed again. They could not enter the promised land. It's a done deal for them. And he elaborated on that later on in chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12. He kept on warning that those who utterly reject Christ will get to the point that it will be impossible that they will ever come back to salvation. And he introducing this idea right here. They did not enter into the promise of God. Why? Because of unbelief. They refused to believe and trust God. That is the, the exhortation in a negative way. He's saying that the, the first generation that left the land of Egypt, they did not believe God. So let's not be like them. Because if we're going to act like them, we're going to end up with the exact same fate that they had when they were utterly be, have been refused by God. And, refused in her, and God refused them to give them his promises. Amen? Amen. Now he moves on to chapter 4. And now he's moving his exhortation from negatively, let's not be like them, to positively, let's strive to enter into his rest. Amen? If you go back to me, his quote from Psalm 95, that will be verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 3 says this, So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter, what? My rest. The whole chapter of chapter 4, the, the, well, most of it, or all of it, depending on how you want to break it, the author of Hebrews is just preaching his sermon on these two words, my rest. He's just spending the whole chapter expounding on what does that mean to the people of Israel and what does that mean to you and me. Amen? And he's saying the people of Israel did not enter into God's rest because of their unbelief. So let's not be like them and let's strive to enter into God's rest. And throughout chapter 4, he gives them four motivations, four reasons why I should strive even more and harder to enter into the very rest of God. You guys are with me so far? It's a little bit complicated. That's why I keep saying you guys are with me. Because if you're not, just tell me so I can repeat myself. He gives them four motivations, four reasons why I should strive even harder Harder than the first generation of Israel that left, the, that left Egypt. So his readers will enter into the promised land. The first reason is they should strive harder because the promise remains. And that's verse 1 to verse 3 of chapter 4. Number 2, they should strive harder because the rest remains. And that's part of chapter verse 3 all the way till the end of verse 10. Number three, they should strive to enter into the rest because the word of God is living. Number four, they should strive to enter into the rest because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. That's the four reasons. Throughout chapter four, the author of Hebrews kept on encouraging his his readers to positively strive to enter into God's rest. Amen? Amen. We're going to... 
do the first one today, probably uh, number two and three, we're going to do it next week. And then in two weeks from now, we're going to close with the last uh, motive, motivation thing that he gave them why they should enter into the rest. Chapter four, it starts by saying this. <clears throat> Therefore, since a promise remain of entering into his rest, let's, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. I'm reading from the New King James, but actually the Greek goes like this. Therefore, let us fear lest any one of us should come short of it since the promise remains to enter his promise. Okay, so it starts by saying, let us fear. Now, the fact that he's telling his readers, let us begin to fear. It seems like that the readers at this point start to become complacent and start not to take the word of God so seriously. And they start taking the word of God lightly in a way that even though they might hear it, they still might not think it is as serious as it could be. Amen. So he's telling them, let us begin to fear. This is important. God's word is powerful. And the examples that we have seen in the Old Testament is still applicable to you and me. So let us begin to fear. Now, is the author of Hebrews telling born again Christian, including himself, that we should live our Christian life in fear? Because we don't know. Maybe I know you're born again now. I know you're a Christian now. And I know you're going to go to heaven now. But maybe you're going to ultimately reject God and end up losing your salvation. And that's why he's encouraging you and me to live in fear. No. No. Right. He's not. So why? He's saying here, let us begin to fear. Well, hold that thought. He's not asking you and me to live in fear. If you're a true born again believer, I'll explain that in a few minutes. But he's not telling us to live in fear. And even the text, he said, let us begin to fear lest any of us, like so that none among us will be like them. You guys are with me? He's including himself. Let us begin to fear, including himself, that he should also begin to fear. But I believe that this is just his pastoral kind of um, talk to people. He always includes himself among his reader. Not that he's afraid of his salvation, but more to say, hey, let's do this together. Let's walk this Christian walk together. Let's walk the perfection of the Christian walk together. And that's why he's including himself among them as well. Amen. And then he said, let us fearless, any of us should um, fall short of entering into God's rest. And then he says in the beginning. Should have put the verses in the text. Uh, Since the promise remain of entering his rest. Amen. And he uses the word promise. Since the promise remains. Now this is the first time the author of Hebrews used the word promise in his book. But if you read that throughout the book of Hebrews. The promise of God is an essential foundation to his theology and his encouragement to the people to, that were reading his book. To his hearers. He kept on going back to the promises of God. Because for him it is the foundation why we should strive on keep on going in our Christian walk. Because we have the promise of God. And we should trust that promise. Remember unlike the children of Israel back then they did not trust the promise of God right we should not act like them we should trust the very promises of God and throughout the book he treats his hearers and he keep reminding them that they are the heirs of the promise of God you guys are with me in chapter 6 verse 12 he says this that you do not become sluggish but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what the promises, they are the promised heirs. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 17. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the 
promise that's you and me, the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath. Chapter 9, verse 15. Those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Amen. If you and me are called, we are to receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Verse 8, chapter 8, verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. That's Jesus. And as much as he also a mediator of a better covenant, the new covenant that you and I have with God, which is established in what? Better promises. Verse chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Again, the, the concept of the promise of God is so prominent in the book of Hebrews. That's the thing in his mind that will keep them going. When they are being persecuted, when the Christian walk gets tough, they have to lean on the very promises of God. You guys are with me? Chapter 11, verse 39 to 40. And all these, the, the cloud of witnesses, the Old Testament believers, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise yet. Why? Because the promises is still valid for you and me. Verse 40. God having provided something better for us. That they should not be made perfect apart from us. He's saying that the cloud of witnesses that he has spoken about. The Old Testament uh, faithful saints. They did not receive the promises of God. Because it's God's ultimate plan. That these promises will be fulfilled. To both Old Testament and New Testament believers. All at once in Christ. You guys are with me? So the promise of God that he starts speaking about here is an essential theme of his book. And we should rely on the promises of God in every single day in our Christian walk. Amen? Amen. And then it says here, while the promise remain to enter. What is he talking about here? What promise has God has given you and me as New Testament believers that we still can enter into God's rest? The author of Hebrews here is probably referring back to the quote from Psalm 95 that David said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the day of wilderness when your forefather tested me and tried me for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with them and I sworn in my wrath. They shall not enter my promise. Amen. Even though it is not explicit in Psalm 95, yet it is implied when David said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. He's saying this in a way, in an essence. Again, it's implied, not explicit. That the only reason that first generation did not enter into the promised land is that because they rebuilt, they disobeyed, and they did not believe. Therefore, God has sworn in his promise, in his wrath, that they will not enter into his rest. Right? But the very first word of the psalm is this. Today, you and I, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So we not end like them, not inheriting the promise of God. Amen? So the idea here is this. If you actually hear the voice of God, if you actually soften your heart, you will end up inheriting the rest of God. You guys are with me? So again, even though it is not explicit in the psalm, it's definitely implied. And the author of Hebrews will expound on that tremendously later on from verse uh, 3, the end of verse 3, all the way to verse 10. He's expounding on that, how the promise still remains for us to enter into the rest. So he said, while the promise remained to enter his rest, right? Mm -hmm. What is rest here means? 
What is the author of Hebrews is talking about? There are two main camps here to try to understand what does the word rest mean. There are those who argue, and there is plenty of them, that rest here is a reference to the joy of salvation. Because the implication of that verse is really, really, really hard. You guys are with me? If the author of Hebrews is talking to genuine believer and he's saying that there's a chance that you might not enter into God's rest, that's, that's huge, right? So the idea here is what he's actually talking about is, in a way, essential to understanding your salvation and my salvation and how we actually might have eternal life and how sure we are, we should be, that we're going to have eternal life. This is important, right? So what does the rest here mean? Some start arguing that the rest here means the joy of salvation. That, you know, you need to strive in your walk with Christ so you can enjoy the fullness of salvation that you have in Jesus. And if you disobey, if you don't believe, then even though you're saved and you'll never lose your salvation and you're still going to go to heaven, yet the completion, the perfection, the joy of your salvation, you will lose. And that's what the author of Hebrews is referring to when he say God's rest, right? That's one camp. The second camp is, is that rest here is actually a reference to your eternal salvation. That you live here your life and once you die as a believer, you enter into God's rest, which is heaven. And he's saying, let's all strive to enter into that rest. The implication here is, it depends on what you can do in a way, because you might ruin it and you might not end up there, right? So which one is it? Is the author of Hebrews talking about the joy of salvation or he's talking about your eternal salvation? I personally believe that once you're a Christian, you, don't, you, you cannot perish, you cannot die uh, and, and lose your salvation. I don't think that this is what the scriptures say. So every part of me wants to believe it's option number one because I feel like this is, it will line up more with the rest of the scripture. But it's really hard in the context of the whole book of Hebrews to imagine that here he's talking about the joy of salvation. He's most likely talking about option number two. Remember, the whole book is written to people who were considering totally rejecting Christ, leave Christianity, and go back to Judaism, right? That the concern that the author of Hebrews have with his reader is not that they're not walking the perfection of their Christian walk. He's worried that they might abandon the old Christian walk altogether, leave it, and go back to Judaism, right? That is the overarching arching theme throughout the whole book. It's really hard for me to imagine, just by being faithful to the text, that somehow he deviated from the overarching scene here to go back to talk about losing the joy of salvation. Chances are he's talking about losing your eternal salvation. That's pretty much what he's warning us from. Amen? Amen. So does that mean that he's concerned? that Because he say, let's strive to enter into his rest. Does that mean that... The author of Hebrews, including himself among those who should fear and be worried about losing their eternal salvation? The answer is still no, and I'll show you that in a little bit. Just keep all of that in mind. Amen? So let's strive, he said, to enter as, the pro- as long as the promise remains, to enter into his rest. Let's, let's strive that none of us will fall from that promise. And then he said this, For we have heard the good news preached to for we also have heard the good news preached to us. We also have heard the good news or the gospel preached to us. When he said we also, what he's comparing us to? He's comparing us to the first generation that left the land of Egypt, right? He's saying they did not, they heard the good news, but they did not enter into God's rest. 
So we also heard the good news. They heard good news. And you and me also heard good news. But let's strive to enter into God's rest in spite of the fact that we share the initial experience of hearing, hearing the good news. They did not obey it. They were abandoned away from it. Let's not be like them. For even though we also heard the good news just like them, we need to strive to enter into God's rest. Now, what is he talking about? That the first generation, that the Israelites who left the land of Egypt heard the good news. He's probably referring to many, many verses in the Old Testament, in Exodus 19, Exodus 23, where God sent Moses to tell him that the promises of God, that they will enter into the promised land. You guys are with me? Many times God promised that first generation that he will deliver them out of the land of Egypt. He will lead them into the land that flows with milk and honey. They had the promises of God so abounding, yet, yet, that good news that they heard through Moses, that they will inherit the promised land. Land, they ultimately rejected these promises. Amen? And they refused to, to, to trust God that He will lead them, that He is able to get them into the promised land. For we also heard the good news. Remember what He said in chapter 2, in the beginning of that chapter? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That was spoken first by the angels in the Old Testament. And then it was spoken to us by the Lord himself. And confirmed by the signs and wonders. So he's linking us again. That the same message was delivered through the Old Testament. And the New Testament. In chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. He's bringing that back up to our memory here. And say remember I talked about that already. The Old Testament generation heard the same message. That was spoken to us lately. You guys are with me? Even the very first of chapter 1. You remember what? He said, very first two verses, God in times past has spoken to our forefathers through the prophets, but has in this last day spoken to us, how? In his son. So he takes us over and over. That's his theme throughout the book so far, that the same message that was preached to the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament people, is also preached to us. It's just different uh, deliverers, different messengers that God has sent. You guys are with me? And then it says this. For we also have heard, let's read that together, verse, um, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed the gospel, the good news, was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Look at this. The word which they heard. Again. The word here, Logos, the same word that describes Jesus in John chapter 1. He, he talks that about that ex, like a lot later on in the chapter in verse 12. He said that the word of God is living and is sharper than every double-edged sword. So he's telling us that word that God has spoken through the prophets of the Old Testament. That word that God has spoken now to us through his son. That word that is living and sharper than every double-edged sword. Is that exact same word that was preached to the Old Testament people that is being proclaimed to you as my readers right now in the New Testament of the book of Hebrews. The only difference is this. When they heard the word, it did not profit them. Why? Here is the reason. Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. This is an astonishing wording and an astonishing warning to every single person living right now, nowadays. You guys are with me? What the author of Hebrews is telling us this. What gets people saved is not just hearing the promises of God and hearing the word and the good news that God is delivering to them, right? 
What will get people saved is that when they hear this word, it should be received by faith in their heart. And he's using the first generation that left the land of Egypt as an example. They heard the good news. They heard about the faithfulness of God. They heard and experienced the power of God. They knew that God has promised them that they will enter the promised land. And in spite of the fact that they heard the good news, it did not benefit them a bit. Why? Because when they heard it, they did not believe it. And I'm telling you, that's the very exact warning that God is sending to every single person nowadays. If you're hearing me today, this is the warning that God has for you. Listen, the gospel is good news. That's what the author of Hebrews said. There is good news in the scripture. You and I are sinners against the holy and the righteous God. And we have been separated from his righteousness for all eternity. And there is nothing we can do to be made right with God. You guys are with me? This is bad news. But Jesus came from heaven. He died on the cross. He paid in full the penalty of your sins and my sins before the holy and the righteous God. And the same Jesus who died on the cross rose again on the third day. And because he's alive, he can change your life and he can bring you today into the very family of God. He can wash your sins clean and you can be a child of God who will inherit eternal life from today forward. Amen. Amen. This is as good of a news as good news can ever get. But the question is, would you believe it today? Would you say, yes, God, there's nothing I can do. There's no good works I can bring to you to make myself right with you. Today, I choose to believe your word and your promises. Or would you start acting like, yeah, yeah, I know about this. I hear about it on Sunday. But you know what? I don't want to believe it. I don't think God is that angry about my sins. I think I can fix it on my own. I'm going to keep on trying. I'm going to keep on doing good works. I might start to figure it out on my own. Today, when you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart. Amen? That's what David told us. That's what the Holy Spirit began the whole story with. Today, if you hear his voice and hear the good news, do not harden your heart in unbelief because that first generation was rejected because of their unbelief. And if you say no to the promises of God today, you also will be rejected. Remember, they could not enter. This is what the word of God said in chapter 3 verse 19. They could not enter because of unbelief. Even though the rest was available and the promises of God was available. It is their unbelief that held them back from entering into the very promises of God. And they end up being utterly rejected by God because they refused to obey. They refused to believe. Amen? Amen. Now... The warning from the author of Hebrews is is clear. He said this in chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, let's be diligent, lest any of us will not enter into the rest. Amen? That means you, that means me, that means every single person in this room. You are object to reject God to that effect if you do not believe his word and his promises when he's speaking to you. Amen? Did not the word did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. The choice is yours today. You can hear the good news of God and say, God, I believe. Or you, you can hear the very good news of God and say, God, I choose not to believe. I don't believe it. I don't trust it. And I'm not going to accept it today. It's your faith 
in the word and the promises of God that will make you enter into heaven, into God's rest, or never enter into God's rest and be utterly rejected. Amen? This is scary, but it's the word of God. Amen? Amen. And then he says this. For we who have believed, this is the good news. Amen? For we who have believed do enter the rest. Amen? Amen. Now, he's speaking about entering the rest as a promise, right? Is the promise something that already happened or something that will happen in the future? The promise is usually for something that will happen in the future, right? If, if, if I promise Brother Emmanuel $10, okay, and you still don't have the $10, you just have to trust my word that I will give you the $10 eventually. Yeah. If I give you the $10, you have it in your pocket. It's not a promise anymore, right? Now, he's talking about the promise of God as a future thing, right? The promise still remains. And he's trying to encourage his readers to enter into that rest of God based on that promise of God. Amen? Yet look how he's wording this part of verse, uh, I don't know, four or something. Three. For we who have believed will enter the rest. They say, do enter. It's a present tense. You guys are with me? He's using present tense to talk about an event that hasn't happened yet. You guys follow me? He does not say, for we who believe will enter into the rest. He said, we who believe do enter into the rest. Why? Because unlike the first generation that heard the word of God and did not have faith, the author of Hebrews had faith. Amen? So even though he has not yet seen the fulfillment of that promise, yet he trusts that God is faithful, that the one who promised is faithful, and that he will surely enter into the very rest of God. That's why he's speaking about it in present tense, not in future tense. Amen? That's faith. That's what makes faith makes all the difference when it comes to our relationship with God. You guys are with me? That's why I told you earlier, is the author of Hebrews when he says, let us fear, is he's including himself that he might lose his salvation. And I told you no. And then later on, I pointed something else as well. Um, when he said, I remember what I said now. Anyways, it says, um, for we have heard the good news preached. Let's strive to enter into his rest. Uh, all this stuff that he's telling his readers. Is he including himself among those who will not believe and perish? No. He's just speaking as a pastor. He's just trying to encourage his readers. Saying, I'm just part of you. I'm not better than you. Just his way of saying it. His way of saying it. But when it comes to his own personal belief. He's saying this. We who believe do enter the rest. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of assurance. We know for sure that we're going to enter into the very rest of God. Amen? Why? Because He promised it and He's faithful to fulfill His promise. Amen? That's why the author of Hebrews is encouraging his reader to do enter the rest because the promise 